Thanks, band, and good morning, everybody. I was uh, I mentioned first service to Peter and I were briefly joking about that song almost being too appropriate, if that's possible. I also mentioned I uh, got a picture frame the other day at a frame shop, and this gal uh, said the frame you're looking at is too matchy matchy to the picture with color. <laughs> you know, too matchy matchy. Is that too matchy matchy of the song to the sermon? I don't know. But obviously it's not. But uh, it's crossed my mind. Uh, I don't have to read anything now, you know. It's basically just preaches itself. Love the artistic license, though, that that song took. And we're going to do a little bit of that. Not so much artistic license. I should say just more looking at a fuller picture of a lot of the symbolism that's employed biblically uh, here. And so have that in mind. If you're new to, to this passage today, we're going to read in just a minute. Or to Matthew, uh, we're going to look at this passage from uh, just a greater wealth of Scripture that I think fills it out uh, wonderfully for us and teaches us a ton about Christ and the nature of salvation and so forth. So we are in Matthew right now, the first book of the New Testament, subtitling the middle section of this um, book, Declaring and Demonstrating the Gospel of the Kingdom. And we will start a new and final mini-series in chapter 26 on the passion of the Christ, the suffering of the Christ, the, the part of the book that focuses, the climax really, that focuses on the suffering of God, the Son of God, in our place as a, as a substitute. So We'll need a new logo at that point, Heidi. <laughs> Not for a while. I'll let you know. I just thought of that when I looked at you. So we'll eventually need it. Heidi's doing all these for us, which is really great. But um, So we're in uh, Matthew 17 right now, 28-chapter book, and so we're plowing through. We've got about a whole other uh, year, I suppose about 10 months at this point now, uh, until we finish up. But um, looking today at the transfiguration. But if, if you have not been here for a while or it's your first day, understand in context in Matthew 16, so right before this, Jesus has been doing a lot, teaching a lot, revealing a lot about himself, especially to his disciples about who he is, more than just a prophet, the son of God, and also one who's come with a greater mission than any of the kings and prophets and great people of old who came before him. In fact, he's here to fulfill them, so maybe resemble them a bit, but to be much greater than they uh, in his kingship, in his saviorship, his, his judgeship, uh, all of that. But he's, he's the son of God. He's going to uh, supersede and fulfill all of them as well. Uh, but at this point, in Matthew 16, last two weeks here, today we're in chapter 17, but in chapter 16, Jesus has just had the most theologically significant conversation with the disciples that he's had so far in the book, and I guess you could argue uh, that there is anywhere in the book, at least pre-cross, um, post-cross is a different story, but uh, here pre-cross, the most theologically significant conversation in that he's just dropped, I mentioned a couple weeks ago, dropped the question of questions on them and asking them, who do people say that I am? And then they responded. They basically say that you're a prophet. But then he says, but who do you say? So implying that they have the wrong answer. He's not just a prophet. Who do you say I am, Peter? And Peter says, you're the son of God. You're the Christ, which means the Messiah, which means the anointed one or king. It's a kingly term, which implies he's the one who's, who God promised would come, who would take away sin, who would remove transgression, who would end all problems in the world, make every, all wrongs right who would bring people back from their banished state back into the garden of God's presence. And, and the way to do that, the, the dividing thing, issue, is sin and death. And so Jesus has to overcome sin and death. We can't do that. He has to overcome that, which he does through the cross, takes care of sin, does through the resurrection, takes care of death. And because it's dealt with, it's dealt that decisive blow in victory, we can actually approach God now again through faith and belief in that. So that was the question he asked. And that's, that's the first time Jesus has gotten this clear. So the movement, the hinge point that chapter 16 serves in the whole narrative, the whole gospel, is clarity. So he's been revealing a lot of these things already, but they've been a bit more foggy. They've been less clear. 
but he's progressively revealing more of himself until we got to chapter 16 where he says, he, he asks him the question, Peter understands on behalf, in a sense, of the rest of the disciples, but Peter especially. And then Jesus proceeds to say, yes, I am the Son of God. Yes, I am the Christ. But here's what that means. I have to suffer. I have to die. He uses the word must. There's no such thing as a crossless Christianity. People believe that. They operate as though there is. But there is no such thing as a crossless, suffering-less Christianity. This is who God is. He, he displays his love and his salvation to us through death, through suffering, and substitutionary in our place because we deserved it. But he, went, he became a human being to do all of that as well. And so there's no way all this can happen without God becoming a man first, a human being, to advocate for us, to die as one of us in our place. All that, of course, happened prior in the story. But this hinge point is, is just that. He's revealing more clearly in word form who he is and what the nature of, of his, his mission is. So the progressive nature of this is huge to pick up on as we go into today's passage. So we just talked about all that the last couple of weeks. That's a, a crude summary, but uh, it's basically what's going on. We've got to understand that because today when Jesus is transfigured or transformed gloriously, his divinity, you could say, comes out more than we see elsewhere in the story, uh, at least thus far. The process, though, we learn a lot about in context with the chapter 16 stuff, but also in how he interacts with the disciples and how he alludes to Matthew, especially as the author or God through him, alludes to the Old Testament on a number of levels. We learn a whole slew of things more about his mission, his uh, character, and what's to come. I like that song actually uh, beautifully got at uh, for us, that there's more to come, hinting at the Lamb of God, the cross. So have that in mind if, if you're newer to the Bible, that everything is building towards the cross. You've got to understand that or this will make little sense. And also, read yourselves into the disciples' experience here and understand God wants to say something to, to us in this. In fact, today, he's going to mention that. He's going to say, God's going to say, listen to my son. He has something to say to you. There's a lot he says in the Bible, but he says something today and in context here as well we're going to get to. But don't approach the Bible as though he's speaking to us. It just remains a theological exercise at best. You know, we'll read it as though we do Shakespeare. Like, great piece of literature. Let's unpack it. Let's study it. But it won't mean something personal to us. But that's how we are to approach the Bible. These are the lively words of God. They are alive. They are active. And we can turn a deaf ear to that or, or an open ear and actually listen as though God is saying something to us, whether it's now like in a formal sermon, reading the Bible by yourself, or in a smaller informal community. Whatever the case, uh, God speaks to us primarily uh, in this manifest manner, this ultimate manner uh, through his word. So let's go in now. Uh, Matthew 17, 1 to 13 is today's passage. It's in your inserts, in your folders you got when you walked in. A lot of this will be on screen here as well, but if you have a Bible want to turn there, We'll reference chapter 16 a couple of times before the morning's over too, so it might be helpful to have that right in front of you. It's up to you. Uh, let's read it in full to begin, Matthew 17, 1 to 13. And after six days, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John, his brother, and led them up a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them. And his face shone like the sun, and his clothes became white as light. And behold, there appeared to them Moses and Elijah talking with them, and Peter said to Jesus, Lord, it is good that we are here. If you wish, I will make three tents here, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah. He was still speaking when, behold, a bright cloud overshadowed them, and a voice from the cloud said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. 
When the disciples heard this, they fell on their faces and were terrified. But Jesus came and touched them, saying, Rise and have no fear. And when they lifted up their eyes, they saw no one but Jesus only. And as they were coming down the mountain, Jesus commanded them, Tell no one the vision until the Son of Man has raised from the dead. And the disciples asked him, Then why do the scribes say that first Elijah must come? He answered, Elijah does come, and he will restore all things. But I tell you that Elijah has already come, and they did not recognize him, but did to him whatever they pleased. So also the Son of Man will certainly suffer at their hands. Then the disciples understood that he was speaking to them of John the Baptist. All right, so the way we're going to structure this today is look at this passage through the lens of four whys. We're going to ask four why questions. You can follow can skip ahead if you want to even look ahead on your inserts if you want to do that or I'm just going to take one at a time here though and we'll uh, work our work our way through it. I think with a passage like this a why question is always a great question of course to ask when you're studying any passage in the Bible but I think especially with kind of a cryptic passage like this enigmatic figures like Moses and Elijah and his transfiguration thing going on it can be especially helpful to ask the why's why is this happening and not this or what are they talking about we'll come to that one here in a little bit what's their conversation and why Moses and Elijah why not another prophet another king, or a judge figure, deliverer figure of the Old Testament. So those will come a little bit, a little bit later. But let's start with the first one. And the first question, the first why is, why after six days uh, does this happen? So note in verse 1 how it was particularly after six days that Jesus took Peter, James, and John to be with him on a mountain, uh, with him, just by themselves, it says, before being transfigured. We'll talk about the essence of the transfiguration, the transformation here uh, in a bit. Uh, but... Note particularly to begin in verse 1 how it was after six days this is recorded. And, and presuppose for a second, I try to encourage us to do this on a regular basis because these peripheral details can be easily uh, read over. And as just history, just a peripheral detail and not something more significant than that. So I try to encourage us to do this. Uh, we do as a culture here, I should say, more so than that. But, uh, but pr- presuppose that it's more than history, it's more than a detail. But presuppose it occurs theologically as well and is recorded here for a theological purpose, and as though God wrote it. Not just Matthew, not just a man recording history, but God wrote it with a divine intent, a spiritual intent to communicate something about himself and about greater theology. Because it is an interesting phrase, right? I mean, on one one level, when you read that, you you might think, well, does it matter at all? That who cares if it was six days later, or why not five days, or why not seven or eight? Why six days, and why take the time to write, to write this down and make it part of the storyline? Or does it have deeper significance? And when we presuppose that it does have deeper significance, then the question becomes, what's significant about six days biblically? How does God reveal himself as a, as a six-day type God elsewhere in the scriptures? And this is where the Bible helps interpret itself. Great interpretational paradigm aside here, just to take for one second, if you're new to the Bible, use the Bible to read itself. There's nothing outside of it, not you, not another scholar, not a great commentary even, that can give you the best insight to it. The Bible itself is the top of the pyramid, and it helps you understand it and interpret it. So when we, do, we ask that question, what does the Bible say elsewhere about six days, and how does that inform our reading here, what's the answer? What's significant about six days biblically? Creation, exactly, right? And there's other things too that we're not going to mention today, but I think the most significant one, that most obvious anyway, is the first time it comes up, which is the first chapter of the first book of the Bible. God works six days to make everything out of nothing, and then the seventh day, it says, he rested 
which becomes this first ultimate Sabbath or, or day, of, day of rest. We're not going to talk a lot about these themes here today because it's not the main thing going on, but I think still an important aside to take here because Matthew goes here. It's one thing if Matthew doesn't go here thematically, but the Bible does elsewhere, and Matthew himself talks about Sabbath and creation before this as well as it pertains to Jesus Christ. So if you've been following Matthew so far, you know that Jesus has been at pains to show how he is the true rest that God gives people. He actually is the Sabbath. He mentioned earlier, he, he breaks the Sabbath law because he's over it. He does not keep it in a law-based sense, and God commanded Israel to do that. So work six days. Do not work on the seventh day. It's commanded that you rest out of reflection on the fact of how God created the world. It all flows from that Genesis 1 account of creation. But in any case, there are other purposes for it as well. In any case, Jesus has been at pains to show how he is now absorbing this Sabbath command. He is the ultimate rest that God gives. So it's not a law anymore. It's a person. Matthew 11, he says, If you believe in me and cast your cares upon me, I will give you rest for your souls. Which the Sabbath command in the Old Testament could never give rest for souls, just for bodies. I mean, Christ is taking the Sabbath idea to a new level. When he dies for our sins, one of the things the Bible says about that when we believe is that we get spiritual rest. Creation ideas here too, but the point is, there's a whisper of this. Not an obvious, glaring thing. We get that elsewhere in the Bible very clearly. But here there's a whisper of Sabbath, rest, new creation. All these things the Old Testament actually promises are going to come anew and be even greater than, than their best days in the Old Testament. But here, Sabbath, again, not a law anymore. It's a person who invites us into his rest and his work for us on the cross. And I want to kind of bookend today with that. So I'm starting with that, and I want, I want to keep that in mind just almost as it is, as a helpful aside to interpreting these types of seemingly peripheral details in Matthew. But we're going to come back to that too and give a final bookend to how it's clear that Jesus works. Actually, it'll be through and through. Never mind. But kind of a bookend uh, of how Jesus works, we don't. He invites us into his rest uh, on the cross, which is distinctly and uniquely Christian, by the way. No other worldview or religion offers rest at this level. It's, it's very work-heavy. It's very on the person, on the worshiper, on the, the religious individual to approach God and climb the ladder on his or her own. We'll come back to that. But for now, second, the second why is why Moses and Elijah? And what are they talking about? Let me read verses 3 to uh, 5 one more time. And behold... There appeared to them Moses and Elijah talking with him. And Peter said to Jesus, Lord, it's good that we are here. If you wish, I'll make three tents here. One for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. He was still speaking when, behold, a bright cloud overshadowed them. And a voice from the cloud said, This is my son, my beloved son, with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. So when Jesus is transfigured or transformed before them, it says that his his face, his clothes, shone like the sun. He, He was all white and bright, and he's transformed, his divinity is being shown off, two other figures appear with him as well. So it doesn't just happen, but two individuals appear. Moses and Elijah, who are Old Testament figures, and they, and they talk with Jesus. It's really cool on one level that this occurs at all, and it's helpful, of course, that the Bible records this, because we don't know exactly how the disciples knew that it was Moses and Elijah, because how do they know what they look like? You know, there's no Facebook back then, or uh, pictures of any kind, so... Uh, sketches even, just, they would have no idea. So we don't know if Jesus told them this or, um, or what happened, but, but we do know it was, it was these two individuals and not others that appeared with Jesus. And that's the first thing. There's two things going on here with this. The first is 
why Moses and Elijah and what are they talking about is the second thing. So first is just to look at these two individuals and what they symbolize in the Bible. So first is it's not someone else, not someone else from the Old Testament, a deliverer figure, a prophet, but it's actually Moses and Elijah spiritually appearing with Jesus in glory. If you don't know who they are, Moses was, you could say, the great deliverer in the Old Testament, the one through whom God, God called him to, to, to do this, but through whom God is working power to help release Israel from physical slavery in Egypt, the story of which is told in the book of Exodus in the Old Testament, second book of the Bible. And Exodus just means to deliver up out of, to, to come up out of something, to be released, in this case, uh, slavery. So Moses enacted this exodus uh, with the power of God, of course, uh, working through him and his brother Aaron as well. He also wrote the first five books of the Old Testament, which we later became known as the Law or the Pentateuch. Elijah was a significant prophet figure in the latter parts of the Old Testament. So together then, and the Bible does this a lot, it looks at people and it sees them as, even though it acknowledges they live, they're actually historical people, and there's other things we can learn about them in the Bible, it sees them a lot of times as representative or symbolic of something. And that's happening here too as well. Moses represents the law, Pentateuch, or one part of the scriptures, Elijah, the latter part. A lot of times you actually see this phrase in the Bible itself, and Jesus referred to it earlier in Matthew. The whole Old Testament could be summarized as the law and the prophets. So Moses and Elijah representing the law and the prophets, the whole Old Testament are here talking with Jesus, which then helps us understand that what we're seeing, among other things, is a physical image of the law and the prophets interacting with Jesus, having some continuity there, but then giving way to Jesus Christ and disappearing. It's really important to understand that Jesus remains alone. When the disciples are fearful, fall prostrate, are trembling in fear, they look up, they only see Jesus after the miracle of transfiguration and this glorious appearance of these two Old Testament saints uh, wanes and disappears. It's only Jesus there remaining, uh, not all three of them. Or that God didn't say, behold my three sons. Listen to all of them, but listen to Jesus. Listen to my son, my, my beloved son. I've sent him. He has something to say to you. Listen to him. Or in practice, then, to put it another way, to pull from the Sabbath idea that I talked about before, you could say that what's represented here narratively, what's demonstrated, is if you link Sabbath with Moses, because Moses was the first guy to write about it in the Old Testament, the law itself came through Moses uh, in the first five books of the Old Testament, you could say that the Sabbath law fades away in the person and work of Jesus Christ, like Moses faded away at the transfiguration. The idea of Sabbath is wrapped up in Jesus. So now that Jesus is here, there's no more need to keep that law before him because he replaces it. He's the new one, the better one, the greater one. It's all pointed to him and meant to point to him in the first place. So two points of that before I move on. You know, one is something we talk a lot about here and we, we try to demonstrate it and model it. You know, we teach the Bible in all kinds of settings here. Uh, but the one is, has interpretational uh, significance. And if you're newer to the scriptures, uh, you can say this, but you can also just get a sense for it in narrative. That's why I love this. You get basically how to read the Bible in more of a story rather than a, a neat 10-point list, which both are great. But the story here is basically saying, read the Bible as though the law and the prophets are all about Christ, that they fade when he comes, that they are wrapped up into him, that all that Elijah was and Moses was, all that they did, all that they spoke, the miracles that they were associated with, were all the beginnings of the later Christ event. If you read it that way, 
Because if we don't, what happens is, and there are, a lot, there are a lot of ways to approach the Bible out there. Not all are right. In fact, I guess all aren't except the one right way, but you know what I mean. There's like gray area in some areas. Anyway, moving on. Um, but if we read it as though Elijah and Moses do not fade away, and though they're standing there with Jesus, the interpretational paradigm that that suggests is to read as though they're all on the same level. I mean, one example of that would be believing that the Sabbath command is law, and it's sinful to not keep a Sabbath on a Sunday. A lot of Christians believe that. Basically, what you're believing, if you practice that, or believe that or practice it, is that Moses didn't fade away at the transfiguration, that he maintained some higher significance with Christ. Christ is great, but you have to keep the Sabbath as well as, as a law and a command. You don't see how it faded into Jesus or wrapped up into him. And the way you practice Christianity is to lower Jesus, or you could say maybe raise up Moses and put him on the same plane. Obviously, this does not mean that you stop reading the Old Testament. It just means you read it with the right lens. It's all God's word. It's just that Christ is the climax, and it's, it's all about him. So if you're newer to the Bible, that's my encouragement, my suggestion uh, if it's brand new to you, you want helps on that, books for that, just want to talk to someone about that, please talk to us about it because it will, I mean, literally uh, change your life. Second thing is, listen to Christ. And so we talked about this before, and I'll actually mention more of this before the morning's over, but this is one of those beautiful places in the Bible where God gets very, very clear, his voice is clear to his people, where he says, I, this is what I want you to do. People ask me that sometimes. What am I supposed to do every day as a Christian? Keep talking about not doing anything but resting in him. Well, there's got to be something to do. It's a great question. But one of the things you got to do, this is an active thing, right? Listening's not passive. Do you listen to Jesus? Do you know his words? In John 10, it says, my sheep know my voice. Do you know the voice of your Savior? Have you listened to him lately? Do you know this book well? This is how God wants to speak to you. And God is very clear. I mean, one of the big job descriptions for a Christian on a daily basis is just to sit down and listen to what God has to say. And he has a lot to say. People also ask, well, I wish I could hear God's voice. Make it more clear. Well, this is a big book. You know, there's a lot in here. Listen to him, and especially the words of, of the Christ, because he's the climax of the whole of the book. So start in the Gospels. If you're brand new to Christianity or the book, start there and listen to what God is saying and uh, rest in it. Just have a Sabbath rest uh, in it. So it's all about him. Look to him, listen to him, and see everything as, as about ultimately him. I'll come back to that second point, like I said, but let's finish this uh, second why here. The second thing is, so the first thing is, why Moses and Elijah? The second thing is, we can know what they talked about, which is really great, because, I mean, if you just have Matthew, and it says that Moses and Elijah appeared and talked to Jesus. My first question, just having Matthew, I mean, years ago, and not knowing other accounts in the New Testament was, what did they talk about? You know, to be a fly in the wall. I mean, there's like almost nowhere I'd rather be. Like, just tell me. Couple sentences. That's all I need, or acronym, or something. Uh, just give me something. Uh, but we, you know, we don't get that here in Matthew. It remains a mystery. But we do know what they talked about. In Luke's account in the New Testament, it says. So let me read that in Luke nine thirty to thirty one. We'll read the whole account, but this is another uh, New Testament gospel, same story. But he adds this: and behold, two men were talking to Jesus, Moses and Elijah, who appeared in glory and spoke of his departure which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. So what happened at Jerusalem? Ultimately, as we know from the story, he went there to die. There's no other reason. At this point, he's in the Galilean region, which is north 
of Jerusalem. Moses' ministry is there. And at one point, he, he sets out to go to Jerusalem ultimately to die, to be crucified, to be mocked, to be rejected. Because that was his mission, ultimately. It was all, it was all, all heading there. And so we know that they talked about that because of the mention of Jerusalem. But what's really helpful here is to unpack linguistically this word departure. So if you, are, uh, if you have a Bible and you have a footnote there for what that word means, the ESV has a footnote there uh, that translates from the, the, the literal Greek. We translate departure because it means that, to come up out of something. We talked about that, or leaving something. Uh, but the literal, uh, the, the Greek word there that's translated departure, and if you don't have a footnote, write it in. Super important, or highlight it, or something. Uh, what's translated is the Greek word exodus which, again, talked about that before in relation to Moses, but exodus means to leave something or to be freed, which again reminds us of that great exodus of the Israelites in the Old Testament when they exodus out of slavery in Egypt behind Moses. Major, 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 major biblical theme to understand. There was an exodus in the Old Testament. God freed his people from slavery. The prophets later in the Old Testament predicted another exodus that was going to come, and it would surpass the first one, and it will be for all nations. So basically how God is disclosing himself in the world progressively is saying, I'm a God who frees slaves. It's one of my main characteristics. I'm an exodus type God. I deliver people. But the new exodus here, so basically you can understand the Bible as though it's referencing two exoduses. The first one pertaining to Moses, and this second one, which here in Luke 9, 30 to 31, so what they're talking about is a new departure, a new exodus, that he was going to bring into the world or accomplish at Jerusalem, i.e., his death and resurrection. In other words, when he dies for the sins of the world, when he raises again three days later, he's making a way for slaves to exodus out of something. The difference, the, the reason why it's so much better than the first one, and the reason why when you read the first one, you have to read it in light of the second one, because the first one was never meant to stand alone. It was always meant to point ahead, just like the Sabbath idea. The Sabbath was never meant to be an end in itself. It was always meant to end and find its goal in Jesus Christ. Same with the Exodus, same with everything in the Old Testament. The better thing here is that he accomplishes a release from spiritual slavery, from sin. In John 8, he says, all who commit a sin, I mean, listen to this, all who commit a sin, anybody who's ever done anything wrong in thought or deed in their life is enslaved and enshackled to sin. And they can't free themselves from it. So what this is saying is Jesus is a liberator, but on a much higher level than, than being released from any kind of physical prison. It's a spiritual one. It's much darker, much more evil, much more eternal, much more hellish than anything you could ever imagine in your life. And Jesus says, this is what I've come to set people free from. Glory to God. This is the new exodus. Oh, and it's much better. I'm the new Moses. I'm the new deliverer here. And he's talking to Moses, which I love that, by the way, too, that Moses, the guy who brings about the first exodus into history, about 1,400 years prior to this point in biblical history, is talking to Jesus, who's going to bring about the new exodus into the world. Which, again, to be a fly on the wall, you know, I just love that. What did they talk about? I mean, what a cool theological exchange that I wish was in the Bible, but praise God, he knows that it shouldn't be, so it's not. But I just love if it would have been. Uh, but just so, so cool that these two exodus guys are talking about the new exodus. Moses gets it, you know, here at this point, and of course, and, and Elijah as well, appearing in glory with him. But Jesus is a liberator from that type of slavery. And one thing here to get so much we can say about this, our whole morning could be given over to this theme 
Not the, not the whole point, though, so we're not going to do that. We've done that elsewhere. But one thing I want you to see here is just this continued, and we've seen this so much in Matthew, this continued resolve that Jesus has to set free captives, to go to Jerusalem, to die on a cross. His mission's always out in front of them. And out of jealousy for the glory of his name and the glory of God the Father, out of obedience to God the Father, sending God the Son into the world, and out of love for you and me, sheer love, he goes to the cross. And he's so resolved all along the story. When, when things start to try to take him off course, like last week when Peter pulls him aside and said, you can't suffer. You're supposed to win the war. You're the Messiah. Jesus says, get behind me, Satan. For you have not in your mind the things of God, but the things of man. So whenever things start to like detrail off the mission here, Jesus is strong, firmly resolved, and rebukes things. Calls them what they are, evil, darkness, this temptation to go away from it. And Jesus says, no, I have to suffer, I have to die. It's the only way my ultimate love, I can, only way I can save my people that I love so, 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 so dearly. So resolve is really out in front of us here when we see that Jesus just goes and talks about these things and not the weather, you know, or sports or something, but it says that he's talking about this redemption. He's talking about his death. He's talking about his resurrection with Moses and Elijah. So, and that's all by God's grace here. It, it do, in other words, it does not say Jesus, Moses, and Elijah talked about the great exodus that people would accomplish by themselves with their own great awesomeness. It works, right? It doesn't say that. Jesus would accomplish it. He did something through the cross. He did something at Jerusalem. He did something through his death and resurrection, and it was an exodus. Or you could say, it does not say Jesus, Moses, and Elijah talked about how to have your best life now. Or, Jesus, Moses, and Elijah talked about how to help people better love their neighbors. Or, Jesus, Moses, and Elijah talked about how to love the poor better. It doesn't say that, right? Those aren't necessarily, well, some of those anyway, uh, bad things, but that's not what he talked about. He talked about things that pertain to him, what he was going to do what he was going to accomplish, what kind of salvation he was going to bring into the world. It's how easy it is to read ourselves into these stories sometimes. It's all about him. It's not about you. Not about me. This is about him and what he's resolved and set out to do, bringing salvation for us, for the sins of the world. He's going to, it's going to be nailed to him on that tree, and he's going to accomplish the greatest act of liberation that has ever, ever existed and ever will in all the universe for all time, for eternity. Praise God. All right, let's move on to the third why. The third why is why such glorification? So some sub-questions here. These are some of mine uh, that I've had about this passage before. Maybe some of you had as well. But couldn't Jesus have talked to Moses and Elijah in a non-transfigured manner? Didn't God speak at Jesus' baptism without a bright cloud and without a transfigured Jesus? And the answer to, that, answer to that last question is, yes, he did. So what's special about this event? Why did he have to be, or why was he uh, transfigured? And to answer that question, we've got to step back and ask, what's the bigger issue at hand here in chapter 16, like we've referenced before, and then into, leading into today's passage, the first part of chapter 17? And the answer is, he's been talking about, remember, the nature of being a Savior. Not just, not just enough to say, that I am a Savior, but this is what it means that I'm a Savior. 
namely his death and resurrection, but first and foremost, his suffering and his death. He has to atone for sin. Matthew 16, 21, let me just remind you of this, especially if you weren't here last week. He just got done saying, from that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. And so I think what makes this statement here, Matthew 16, 21, so amazing in context with today's passage is just what happens in today's passage. And that is his divinity is shown off, right, today. His glory, his power, his untouchableness. When you look at just the Jesus, the transfigured Jesus from today, you don't think about a suffering servant much, right? You have to be almost forced into that. You don't consider a Messiah who could be nailed to a cross. I mean, you're seeing God before you, transfigured. These descriptive things about his face being, this whiteness in his face being like the sun, are words given to God the Father elsewhere in the Bible. We're we're seeing God before us. So I think what's significant here is it's almost like this passage linked with last week's passage is giving us a glimpse of suffering to glory, of death to resurrection, right? Because you just got done talking about, I have to die. And then he appears as, as like a glorious, almost resurrected type savior before the disciples in today's passage. No coincidence, you guys. These passages are linked up together like this. Always look for what comes before and what comes after and just presuppose God has the order uh, preordained as well. We're basically getting a glimpse of death to resurrection. So death is the end. The transfigured Jesus will come in all the more of a transfigured state uh, out of the empty tomb uh, shortly here in the story. So again, got to understand that juxtaposition here. Jesus is the Savior sent by God who would reign and bring us away from banishment from God into a kingdom he himself would dwell in. But the means by that is his own death and resurrection. The means by that has to go through that. Forgiveness of sins comes through that, not around it. Love comes through that, not around it. Justification of being righteous or okay, just favorable to God, goes through suffering and his death, not around it. We can't have that crossless Christianity. Jesus knows that. It doesn't leave it open to us to actually read the Bible faithfully and conclude that there is a way for God to forgive or deal with sin apart from this. There just wasn't. He has to do this. He is, understand that he is, with that said, the transfigured, glorious divine Savior who took on a very non-transfigured existence for you. That's what I think we should do is reading backwards here. This is what he is. This is who God is. He's a glorious, transfigured, shining like the sun, divine Savior who took on a less than that for you. He became not transfigured. And more than that, he became striped and bruised and mocked and spit on and beaten and nailed to a bloody cross among criminals to die as one of us on a tree. Gotta have both or you lose all of Christianity with it. He's God, not just a prophet or a good guy. He's the transfigured God, Jesus, the the Son of God, who's lowering himself to die at Jerusalem for the sins of the world. That's what we're getting here. So when we think about that, when he's mistreated, abused, whipped, crucified, tortured, bearing our sins, dying a death we deserve, we're also knowing that three days later, he's going to rise again. He's saying, basically, at your sentencing, with an eternal mountain of evidence stacked against you, he's saying, I'll take the blow. I'll take the sentence for him or her. That's the great act of God substituting himself for you. And he's done that for all of you today. Whether or not you're a Christian, he's made that possible. He's just held it out there and said, this is my love for you. 
everything that's, that's against you, I'm going to absorb and take it upon myself. Believe, rest in me, and be saved. And listen to that, by the way, as well. When God says, listen to him, listen to my son, he's saying, listen to things like this. The Son of Man must die on a cross. Don't read over that. This is what God wants us to know. It has to happen. There's no other way to be saved. And if he loves us, then of course he's going to say, listen, I love you. I want you to be saved. And to know that, to be saved, you have to listen to my son. Listen to him say, he has to go to Jerusalem. He has to die on a cross among criminals. He has to be treated as guilty even though he's innocent. He has to be your substitute. To put your faith and cast your care on that is what saves and expresses God's love at the highest level. All right, let's move on. The final why. This last thing leads into it. Why is Jesus' post-transfiguration response so amazing? Verses 6 to 8 again. When the disciples heard this, they fell on their faces and were terrified. But Jesus came and touched them, saying, Rise, have no fear. And when they lifted their eyes up, they saw no one but Jesus only. So what I really want you to see here is the movement in the passage. Just get the whole story in your mind. Try to smell the air a bit and put yourself there. There's movement in the passage from fear, the disciples trembling and fearing for their life, and Jesus saying, rise, and touching them on the shoulder and saying, don't fear. And I want to be really, really clear here. Uh, Again, super, super easily missable. But this is what happens when all of you believe and trust in Jesus Christ for the first time. And maybe I could better say it this way. This is what God has done for you if you believe. Christian or not, this is what he's like. This is what he wants you to know. That though you are separated from God and, and kept away from his fearful but glorious presence. Remember that? What happens there is God speaks and just reveals himself in this bright cloud. And he speaks and they fall on their face trembling in fear. That's a problem. It wasn't that way in the Garden of Eden, right? God spoke and they listened and they, and they laughed and they smiled and they walked next to each other. That's because of sin. When God speaks and shows up and we fall on our face trembling, there's a problem there. It has to be remedied. But praise be to God, Jesus does, right? He's there. I mean, he's literally standing, standing between the bright cloud who's speaking and causing fear and these disciples who are on their face trembling. He's literally right between them. He's the the mediator of mediators, right? He's fixing that problem. They're fearing the presence of God. They have sin. All they have to hope for is an eternal hell. But Jesus is there, saying, touching them, saying, rise. Don't fear. I'm taking care of everything. The entire burden of salvation, the fix for this issue here, is me. Not you, me. Now in flesh, who just a few not too long from now, is going to die on a cross in your place like you. That, that's where I'm headed. At this point, he's headed to Jerusalem. He's talking about it here as well, right, with Moses and Elijah. He's resolved. He's on mission. He's set out to do it. It's another thing, too, to consider the fact, one more slide here uh, to look at on this fourth why. It's another thing to consider what's said here. You know, when Peter's saying to Jesus, uh, verse 4, Peter said to Jesus, Lord, it's, it's good that we are here. I didn't say a lot about this today, but that is, uh, you know, Peter says a lot of things. 
not always great, mostly not great. I mean, you should write that down. And if you're ever in the situation, don't say that. Uh, you know, he probably wants that one back. But anyway, if you wish, I will make three tents here. Uh, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah. Here's the key. He was still speaking when, behold, a bright cloud overshadowed them. And look what happened. A voice from the cloud said, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. Do you guys see what's happening there? We're saved by God's grace, not by what we do. Look what Peter's saying. If you want Jesus, I will do this for you. I will set up tents for you. I will make it more comfortable for us on, on the mountain. We can stay here for a long time. I, 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 I will do. And while he's still saying that, while he's expressing his amazingness and what he can do for God, God interrupts him with the cross. He stops his mouth and says, no, I will do it. I will save you. God will save. My son will save. Listen to him. He will save you. He will give you rest. He will give you new freedom. He will exodus you out of your sin. Don't you love that? How he interrupts our self-worship. I will do this with, bam, the cross, the new exodus. What's going to happen at Jerusalem? Listen to my son. You have to know that. And, and isn't God amazingly gentle with Peter here? You know, And he's gentle with you as well and me. When he says, stop talking. It's not about you. You don't save yourself. There's nothing you can do for God. If that's the essence of your Christianity, you wake up every morning thinking what you can do for God, you've greatly missed the message of the Bible. And you have to understand today that essence is not what you do for him. It's what God does for you. There's no rest in the former. There's only rest in the latter. There's no Sabbath rest over here, working really hard for God, and hopefully you get in, in the end. God wants you to rest and have a Sabbath rest with him. He wants to accomplish a new exodus, a new way of freedom from sin for you, and he does that on the cross. I mean, if the essence of your spirituality, and it is for me many times today, even as Christians, we, can, we, we do, we will wrestle with this all the time, but it's what we're saved from, praise God. It's what we're saved from, what Christ died for. But the essence of your spirituality is asking God what you can do for him just flip that around and understand that God, even today, is interrupting that thought process with himself, saying, stop talking. Here I am. I'll do it. I'll take care of it. Put the burden on me. Listen to Jesus. What does Jesus say? You can look at almost anything in the Bible with his words, which point right ahead to the cross and say, I love you. I'm going to the cross to die for you. Remember me through communion. You could list off a whole slew of things. I am the door. I am the resurrection and the life. I am the, I am the way back to God. I'm the only way. Look at all what he says and take it to heart and look at how much it's on him and not on us. And there are many forms of Christianity out there that will be like a tent-making form, like a Peter form, but they're not, real true, they're not really true Christianities. They're, they're false images. Uh, they might look like the church, look like Christianity, but they're a million miles from it. And so if that's in your heart or you see it out in the world, just lovingly expose that gently like God is here. Just say, no, interrupt that way of thinking with the gospel. Interrupt that way of thinking with a proper unpacking of what happened on the cross and just the words of Christ. Draw people to listen to him and, uh, and not to themselves anymore. So here's what the transfiguration tells us. Uh, 
I'll just summarize here, read these fairly quickly. The Messiah must suffer, but that suffering will be followed by glory. For it is no ordinary man who suffers, but the Son of God. In this, Jesus is working towards ushering in a new creation, a new exodus, and will give us that ultimate seventh-day Sabbath rest when he takes our sins away and defeats death on our behalf. And maybe we see it best third here. When the transfigured Jesus touches the disciples on the shoulder, God touch. I mean, don't lose sight of that. The hand of God is touching people right there. That is not possible without the cross coming. I mean, it has... Unless we have, first of all, the incarnation, God becoming like us and condescending himself, but what's going to come right on the heels of this story is the cross. It's just not possible. God touches his disciples on the shoulder and lovingly says, don't fear. He loves them in this. He's gentle with them. You don't have to fear anymore because of what I'm going to do for you. You can approach God now. So the point to this passage uh, is not to try really hard to not say something inappropriate and stupid like Peter. The the point is Jesus, through and through Jesus. A relentless gospel of grace, rest, new life, power, new exodus, new Sabbath, all of that. It's all about him and what he's bringing into the world. Actually, the point is, in spite of our Peter-like silliness and constant, like he's saying, I'll make these tents for you, I'll do this for you, God, our constant attempts to self-justify to be religious, to work towards making God happy. In spite of all that, Jesus interrupts it with himself and says, I'm going to die for that because that's idolatry, that's self-worship. That's putting yourself above me. That's basically saying you're able as a sinner to to get back to me. That's the core of sin. It's It's why Jesus so frequently rebukes religion. Good people, religious good people in the Gospels, it is the antithesis of what he's coming to do. Because it says, I'm okay, or I'm good enough at least to get back to you. But Christ interrupts this. And all of us have done this. Actually, as we sit here, as I stand here, it's like there's part of us that are just disbelieving still and, and are operating this way. But So in spite of all that, our constant attempts to self-justify and save ourselves and look good before people, stop the charade. It's not about you. Just stop it. Rest at the feet of Christ. This is an invitation for us today. Listen. Listen to the Son. Don't listen to the law, to yourself, to morality, to another God. Listen to Jesus ultimately. If you want to be saved, you want to approach the cloud of light again and be with God forever, the only way to go is through the de-transfigured Christ who bled for us. Glory to God. Let's pray. God, thank you for today and the, the gospel of Matthew 17, which tells us in one way very cryptically, another way very clearly, uh, that we cannot self-save, not self-justify. We cannot approach you on our terms. Uh, you approach us on yours. Uh, thank you that you resolved to talk with Moses and Elijah, Jesus, about what you were going to do, what you were going to accomplish at Jerusalem for us, not about what you hoped we would figure out on our own, not about what you hoped we would get a little bit better at, uh, in our, working out our religiosity or, or morality, a dead world. But God, no, you were talking about your mission and what you were going to do for us. God's very, very, very humbling, but such good news. God, forgive us uh, for being like Peter and constantly saying before you, in some fashion, saying or living as though it's kind of true, um, that we want to make tents for you to live in. 
God, you have come down to us and in Christ tented among us and dwelt among us on your dime, on your watch, on your terms. God, so I pray that we would rest in that, have a Sabbath rest in that today, have a new Exodus-type freedom in that today, have new, a new, newly created spirit in that today, and just see how all the law and the prophets were about you. It's all been wrapped up in you, that we would listen to you now, ultimately. All been made a beeline to the Christ and at this point in the story, still looking ahead to the cross, that's where all things are fulfilled, all things are made new, all things are saved. Praise God. In Christ's name, amen.